Welcome back to the Heal Your Hormones podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle. September is PCOS Awareness Month. So over on Instagram, I asked you to submit all your PCOS questions and I got a ton of great ones. I'll probably be dividing up the questions into two episodes, depending on what we get through over the next 30 to 40 minutes. Let's just start with, you know, what exactly is PCOS for anyone who maybe is newly diagnosed and is overwhelmed by the term, or maybe you've just read about it online, but aren't quite sure what it is. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome and about one out of eight women have it, but it's estimated that 50% of women who have it don't know they have it. And it is the most common cause of anovulatory infertility. So this is when a woman is not able to get pregnant because she's not ovulating, meaning she's not releasing an egg. So common symptoms of PCOS are going to be things like irregular periods. So having your periods more than 35 days apart. Sometimes this means you'll have your period every three months, every six months, sometimes once a year. Things like acne, hair loss, facial hair growth, fatigue, bloating, you name it. Really PCOS can affect women in so many different ways. And the tricky thing about PCOS is that it can look differently in everyone. So your friend who has PCOS may not have the same symptoms as you, which means you know what works for your friend in terms of healing their PCOS may not be the exact right fit for you as well. So one question I got was, what blood test should I be asking for every year? And I think this is really important because a lot of times we can just kind of go to our doctor's appointment and assume that they're checking what needs to be checked and that they've kind of got it covered. But just through my experience of working with women with PCOS, I have seen firsthand how little support and guidance they're given and how many things are kind of falling through holes or falling through the cracks. So I think it's really important that if you have PCOS, you know what you should be asking your doctor for every year and how to advocate for yourself. So this list is going to be very, very simple. I definitely test a lot more with my patients, but this is the absolute bare minimum what you should be asking for each year. So the first is going to be hemoglobin A1C. And this essentially just looks at your blood sugar over the past three months and it helps to diagnose prediabetes and diabetes. Now this is important because about 70% of women with PCOS will have some sort of insulin resistance or blood sugar imbalance, which we will get to. So it's important that you're checking your hemoglobin A1C every year so that you can see if you're starting to get closer to that pre-diabetic range. Now you really do have so much power and so much control over your blood sugar through making decisions about what you're eating, the supplements you're taking, and how you're choosing to move your body. Very often in conventional medicine, prescription medications are given to manage blood sugar without there ever being a conversation around how to eat to manage your blood sugar. So if you're somebody who you, maybe you've been told that you're pre-diabetic and that's really concerning to you and you're really worried and you're kind of afraid and you feel like you need to be on medication, I would say if your doctor is not willing and able to have a conversation with you about how you should be eating and moving your body to improve your blood sugar so that you're able to get off your medication eventually, then you need to find a new doctor who is because especially when it comes to blood sugar, medication is not the only answer. It should not be the only part of the conversation. And you need a doctor who's going to look at the whole picture 
and who wants to teach you and help support you in managing your blood sugar naturally long-term. So that's lab number one. You should also be asking for what's called a lipid panel. So this is going to look at cholesterol and it's going to look at cholesterol in a few different ways. So it's going to look at HDL, which is our good cholesterol. It's going to look at LDL, which is our bad cholesterol. And then it's going to look at something called triglycerides. And this is essentially when we eat sugar or drink alcohol and it's converted into fat. And we know that PCOS increases women's risk of high cholesterol. So this is something you want to be checking every year. So we've got hemoglobin A1C, lipid panel. The third is going to be a TSH, which stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. And this is really important for really any woman, regardless if you have PCOS or not, but you should be checking it every year because low thyroid function is so common. It's more common in women with PCOS than women without PCOS. And it can easily be affected by stress, sleep, what we're eating. Even if we get, say, COVID or another viral infection, that can impact our thyroid health. So don't just assume if your thyroid was good last year that it is good this year. You want to retest it. And then lastly, I would definitely test testosterone and a hormone called DHEAS. So these two hormones are in the same family. They're very similar but we often see at least one, if not both of these hormones high with PCOS. So with testosterone, it's typically high due to an imbalance in blood sugar. And with DHEAS, it's typically high due to stress. So I think it's important to be testing these every year just so you can kind of be proactive. And even if you feel like your PCOS is well-managed, Testing these hormones can give you insight, and if they start to increase, then you can kind of reevaluate things and think, okay, my testosterone is high. Have I been really eating to balance my blood sugar? Or my DHEAS is high. Have I been sleeping well? Have I been managing my stress? And this is a good time to check in with yourself. By asking for these labs every year, it will allow you to get the information sooner and be proactive and be preventative rather than waiting until things are so bad that you're feeling so unwell and then you go to get these labs. All right, next question was, do you still have PCOS once symptoms have cleared from the pill? So it's really unclear whether someone can fully get rid of their PCOS, but I prefer to use the term in remission. So with post-pill PCOS, and this is when essentially your PCOS symptoms start after coming off the birth control pill. Now, the birth control pill is often prescribed to teenagers for irregular periods or for acne. And if this is you, then you likely had PCOS symptoms as a teenager. And even if you, you know, have been on the pill for 10 years and now you're coming off and you're just learning you have PCOS... If you had these symptoms as a teenager, you likely don't have post-pill PCOS. You likely had PCOS before you were put on the birth control pill. Post-pill PCOS is really for those women who are like, I had very regular periods, I had clear skin, I had no problems, I went on the pill purely for contraception, and when I came off, things were haywire. That is post-pill PCOS. Now, I see these symptoms related to post-pill PCOS go into remission kind of indefinitely more often than women who have like insulin resistant PCOS or stress related PCOS. Now, if you have underdeveloped follicles in your ovaries, which this is what's seen on ultrasound, if your doctor has given you an ultrasound to look for PCOS, these are still going to exist. They're not going to be completely vanished. But if you can heal your hormones after coming off the pill, then you can prevent 
more of these follicles from developing and you will start to ovulate regularly. And that's when you will see symptoms improve. So not really fully curing your PCOS, but more so bringing it into remission long-term. Now, next question is, do PCOS symptoms worsen or improve during pregnancy? So typically PCOS symptoms will improve during pregnancy, particularly acne and hair loss due to the hormonal changes that we see in pregnancy. Also, you know, a common sign of PCOS is irregular periods, which of course is going to be irrelevant when you are pregnant. Now, women with unmanaged PCOS are at a higher risk of a few things during pregnancy, including miscarriage, and this is often related to low progesterone. So if you have PCOS and you get a positive pregnancy test, I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to talk to your doctor and ask them to test your progesterone levels as soon as they're able because taking progesterone orally as a medication can be enough to prevent miscarriage. But unfortunately, it's not part of standard testing, so you do have to ask for it. And with PCOS, progesterone is often low, and it's so important for maintaining pregnancy during the first few weeks. Unmanaged PCOS during pregnancy can also increase your risk of gestational diabetes if you already are you know, insulin resistant and already have struggles with your blood sugar. So that's going to be really important if you're thinking about getting pregnant with PCOS, start to think about how to eat to balance your blood sugar now so you already have those skills and those habits built when you become pregnant. Unmanaged PCOS can also increase your risk of hypertension during pregnancy, so high blood pressure, and preterm birth. So I think it's really important to do at least three months of really good fertility support and PCOS support to get your body in the best place possible before getting pregnant with PCOS. The next kind of group of questions is going to center around blood sugar. So somebody asked just for more information on insulin resistance. And this is a really big one because insulin resistance, like I had mentioned, is present in about 70% of women with PCOS. It is the most common cause of PCOS. Insulin is a hormone that is made in our pancreas, and it helps to bring sugar out of the blood into cells to be used for energy. Insulin resistance can be partially related to genetics, but what we eat and how we move our body plays a major role in improving insulin resistance. And I think this is so important because with PCOS, it can feel like you're kind of out of control and that your body doesn't really belong to you but you do have so much power in controlling your PCOS if you're given the right information and you know how to do it. So if we eat foods that spike our blood sugar, then our body has to make more insulin to compensate and our cells stop responding. So I kind of think of like, imagine if someone is yelling at you for five minutes, you're going to listen. But if someone yells at you for five days, eventually you're going to tune them out. And this is essentially what our cells do when they are constantly being bombarded with insulin. Eventually they say, we don't really want to respond to insulin. We're going to ignore it. And as a result, insulin and sugar ends up building up in the blood. Now with insulin resistance, metformin is a drug that is commonly prescribed to women with PCOS. Now, unfortunately, it's often prescribed to women without their blood sugar ever being checked. I see this so often that women are put on metformin, their blood sugar was never checked, 
when we take them off metformin, their blood sugar is fine and they really should have never been on in the first place. And with metformin, it can cause digestive issues and cause nausea, diarrhea, stomach cramps, and it can also cause B12 deficiency. So unless you really need to be on metformin, I do not typically recommend it. And like I had mentioned before, if you're going to be prescribed a medication for your blood sugar, you need to be thinking about how can you eat to balance your blood sugar as well. It's not that I'm anti-metformin. I think metformin can be extremely helpful when somebody's blood sugar is really high. But I look at metformin as a temporary solution to get the blood sugar under control while we build on diet and lifestyle changes with the goal to be getting off metformin. Now, the number one way to check for insulin resistance is going to be to ask your doctor to test your fasting insulin. And I don't know why, but some doctors will refuse to order this for you. It's extremely frustrating. There, Some doctors have a mindset that only endocrinologists should be ordering it. And I have seen some primary care doctors refuse to order it. Um, but find a doctor who will order it for you. And you want to test your fasting insulin after you've been fasting for 12 hours, which essentially means no food. The only thing you can have is water and black coffee. And women with PCOS really do best and feel their best when they have a fasting insulin eight or under. So the range for fasting insulin is pretty broad. You could have yours come back at 1920 and that would be considered normal. But in my practice, I have seen women do the, and feel their best with a fasting insulin of eight or less. I've had a patient whose doctor refused to order it because they said if it came back abnormal, they wouldn't know what to do for them which was wild to me that they would rather have had this patient not know the information about their body than have to do a little bit of extra research or maybe referred them to somebody who didn't know what they were doing. And ironically, a few days later, that doctor ended up calling back and saying, okay, I'll order the test for you. So I don't know if maybe that doctor was talking to another doctor and the other doctor may have said, like, you really should not refuse them that test. But um, you know, continue to advocate for yourself and just know that you should be getting your fasting insulin checked if you have PCOS and you don't know if you're insulin resistant. And then overall, you know, how to balance blood sugar. I have episodes specifically on this, so go back and listen to those, but just some kind of spark notes here, including a protein, fat, and fiber with every meal is so important. So when I think protein, I'm thinking, you know, meat, chicken, fish, beans, eggs, when I'm thinking healthy fats, avocado, olives, nuts and seeds, fatty fish, or fiber. So vegetables and whole grains like brown rice, sweet potatoes, quinoa. I actually have a download that I've created called the PCOS meal planning plate. And so I will link that in the show notes if you're interested in downloading it and just kind of starts to teach you how to build your plate with these things, protein, fat, and fiber, so that you can support your hormones and support your blood sugar. With this method, it's not about avoiding foods, but it's about looking at your plate and thinking, okay, what am I missing? What do I need to add to my plate? Do I have a healthy fat? Should I add some walnuts? Do I have a protein? Should I add some eggs? Rather than this restriction mentality. Second thing I'd say is to eat your veggies first, your protein second, and your carbs last. And you don't have to follow this rule, you know, hard and fast, but in general, if you are, you know, sitting down for dinner, try to eat your salad first or snack on some veggies while you're making dinner, have your protein, and then, 
you know, have your rice or your tortilla chips or whatever it is later on in the meal because you'll have already consumed fiber and protein first. And that's going to help to slow down the absorption of those carbohydrates at the end of the meal. This kind of goes for sweets as well. So having your veggies and your protein first, your sweets last. And then walking even just five minutes after a meal, there was actually a new study that came out that showed that walking for even just two minutes after a meal can help to stabilize blood sugar. So if you can start to build that as a habit, maybe you focus on dinner first. So you have dinner, you go on a five minute walk around the block. Maybe you just walk up and down your stairs or walk around your house, build that habit first, and then move on to lunch, build that habit, and then move on to breakfast. You know, choose something small to focus on for a few weeks. And then once you feel like you have that habit built and it's going to be sustained, then move on from there. And the last thing I'll say about balancing blood sugar is it's really important to incorporate some form of strength training, ideally two to three times a week. So strength training can look like using free weights. It can look like body weight exercises. So squats or push-ups or tricep dips. It can mean Pilates because definitely involves strength training, but strength training is going to help to increase muscle, which is going to help to improve insulin resistance. And somebody asked how to know if I'm balancing my blood sugar. So some key things, when your blood sugar is stable, you have stable energy. You don't feel like your energy crashes after meals. You don't feel hungry after meals. You don't feel like you have to take a nap in the afternoon. You know, one of the first things my patients notice when they start to work with me, typically I'll start focusing on breakfast with them. We work on building a really nutrient-dense breakfast. And usually within that first month, month and a half, they say their energy is so much better just because they focus on getting that protein, fat, and fiber in the morning because that's really going to set them up for stable blood sugar throughout the rest of the day. Also, when you have stable blood sugar, you won't have those sugar cravings in the afternoon or at night. You won't have brain fog. You know, maybe you'll have a little bit less bloating, but I'd say like the main signs are stable energy, no cravings, no brain fog. And of course you can always, you know, retest your labs and things like that. But if you're looking for a sign that your blood sugar is balanced, that's a good sign. And then over time, you'll start to see more regular periods as well. And then somebody wrote, not really a question, but more of a statement was PCOS fatigue is real. And I wanted to loop this into kind of the blood sugar category of questions because, you know, the fatigue definitely can be related to hormones. It can be related to nutrient deficiencies like low iron, low vitamin D, low B12, which I see oftentimes with PCOS. But blood sugar balance really, I think, is the most common cause of PCOS fatigue. So the best thing you can do is start with a nutrient-dense breakfast. So number one, if you're going to drink coffee, have coffee after you've eaten breakfast, after you've had some sort of food, and add a fat and protein to your coffee. So add a scoop of collagen powder. The one I like is Further Foods. I'll link that in the show notes as well. They've got like a vanilla, a hazelnut, a chocolate. I The vanilla is probably my favorite. But add a scoop of collagen, which will dissolve right in. And then I'll add, I don't really do coffee a ton, but when I do, I'll add like a little bit of full fat coconut milk, like from a can. Um, And then as well, making sure you're getting a balanced breakfast. So some examples, you know, oatmeal is a really common breakfast for people. Now oatmeal is going to be a lot of carbohydrates. And if you're just eating oatmeal and fruit, that's going to 
be absorbed into your body. It's going to spike your blood sugar quickly. And then your blood sugar is going to crash and you're going to feel hungry. You're going to get those cravings and you're going to have low energy. So it's not that you can't have oatmeal. It's not about avoiding foods. It's about thinking about the oatmeal and what can you add to that oatmeal. Think protein and fat. Can you add maybe a scoop of nut butter, which is going to be mostly fats, a little bit of protein. Can you add a scoop of collagen powder or protein powder to add protein to it? Maybe do something like seeds. So chia seeds are great for healthy fats. Hemp seeds are really great for healthy proteins. So that's just one example of how you can take kind of a standard breakfast and add food to it to make it more PCOS friendly. And then another kind of abstractly related um, question to the blood sugar, somebody wrote, need help with weight loss. And blood sugar balance is going to impact hormones like testosterone, cortisol, and our thyroid. And all of these things will impact weight loss. So I really believe the number one thing to focus on for weight loss with PCOS is blood sugar balance. And that can be difficult because when it comes to weight loss with PCOS, I see a lot of women restricting, not eating enough food, you know, being afraid of healthy fats, being afraid of carbohydrates, um, which is going to have fiber, but, you know, getting over that mentality and realizing that food can be used as medicine and you have to sometimes add food to your plate in order to see the weight loss changes you desire. Truly the most common mistake I see women make is not eating enough protein in the morning. Breakfast is usually lacking protein or they're skipping meals or just having coffee as a meal or they're killing themselves in the gym. So they're doing tons of cardio and high intensity interval training and sometimes less is more with PCOS. And sometimes you have to you know, think about what you've been doing and ask yourself, has this been working for me? Has restricting these foods been working for me and helping me feel my best and lose weight? Or has killing myself in the gym and working out in this way been working for me? And if the answer is no, then I think you just need to trust that maybe trying something different is worth a try to see what outcomes you can get. I was definitely right. This will definitely be two episodes. I'm going to be covering a couple more questions on specific hormones. And then next week's episode, we'll cover your questions related to hair loss, acne, facial hair, gut health, and mood. So this next question is, is ashwagandha and saw palmetto good for elevated testosterone? So I'll start with ashwagandha. And ashwagandha is an adaptogenic herb, meaning it is a plant that helps the body adapt to stress. And it helps our adrenal glands adapt to stress. Our adrenal glands are our stress glands. So this is going to help lower testosterone and DHEIS if stress and adrenal dysfunction is the cause. Now, high testosterone can be related to inflammation in the ovaries and blood sugar imbalance. So ashwagandha might not be enough to lower testosterone on its own if it's not primarily adrenal related. So I think of ashwagandha as better suited for high DHEAS because that is primarily coming from the adrenal glands and it can be helpful for testosterone, but I'm going to be doing some other things with my patients along with the ashwagandha. Now, saw palmetto is a plant that helps to turn off an enzyme that makes testosterone. So this can be helpful regardless of where testosterone is being made in the body. And then somebody else wrote in how to lower DHEAS levels. 
So again, DHEAS, very similar to testosterone. They cause very similar symptoms when they're too high. So they cause deep cystic acne along the jaw. They can cause hair loss, facial hair growth, irregular periods, weight gain. But the primary difference is that DHEAS is primarily made in the adrenal glands when we're stressed. So of course, stress management, number one and is so underrated when it comes to healing PCOS. I talk about this all the time with my patients, that stress management is just as important as what you're eating, how you're moving your body, and the supplements you're taking. The area I see women struggle probably the most with this is really setting boundaries in their life and in their work, especially now that we're working from home, setting that boundary of not just working odd hours at night, or you know, maybe trying to set boundaries where their boss can't access them at all hours and kind of demand whatever they want of them, which I know can be difficult when you do have to answer to your boss. But stress management is so key in making time for yourself. Also, when it comes to our adrenal health, sleep is so important. So making sure you're getting seven to eight hours of sleep and really committing to going to bed at the same time and waking up around the same time. Ideally, I like to see my patients get in bed by 10, 30, 11, no later than 11 in a perfect world, 10 to 10, 30. I'm honestly, I'm a grandma. I go to bed. If it hits like 9, 30, I'm not in bed. I kind of have a, have a, have a panic attack. Um, not, not quite that extreme, but I do get nervous. I'm like, I got to get to bed. But if you struggle with sleep, if you struggle to fall asleep, if you struggle to stay asleep, there are ways to fix that. And I think a lot of times we just think, oh, bad sleep. It's just kind of luck of the draw, but there are so many things that you can do naturally to support sleep. So definitely work with somebody if that is you. Also supporting your adrenal glands, eating enough protein. So again, going back to breakfast, looking at how you can add protein to breakfast. I usually recommend aiming for 20 grams of protein by 10 a.m. So maybe that's not entirely with your breakfast, but maybe that's also including adding a scoop of collagen to your coffee, maybe having like a mid-morning snack. Drinking less coffee is going to help your adrenal glands and help to lower DHEAS because when we drink coffee, it's going to stimulate our adrenal glands to make cortisol, which is our stress hormone. And that's what's going to give us that temporary energy boost. But when our adrenal glands are stimulated to make cortisol, they're also going to be stimulated to make DHEAS and that's going to further increase levels. And then thinking about nutrients like B vitamins and magnesium can be really helpful for the adrenal glands. Always talking to your doctor before you start a supplement, but you can test for B12 levels and magnesium fairly easily with your primary care doctor. I like to see B12 around 500 usually. So if you are low in B12, especially if you follow a plant-based diet, you're not going to be getting as much B12. It might be helpful to get tested. A great plant-based source of B12 is nutritional yeast. So if you're unfamiliar with nutritional yeast, it is a yellow flaky yeast, I guess you would call it. And I could not tell you where to find in the grocery store. It's usually one of those things where every time I go to a new store, I have to ask someone where it is. And they usually bring me to like the baking yeast and they're completely not correct. So I usually have to just hunt it down myself, but you can also order it offline and nutritional yeast is going to have a slight cheesy flavor to it. So I'll put it on eggs. I'll put it on avocado toast. I'll put it on salads, on veggies, um, really anything that's not sweet. I'm putting nutritional yeast on it. I do eat meat, but I just, 
I used to be vegan. I loved nutritional yeast back then and I still love it now. And then somebody wrote in how to naturally increase estrogen. So estrogen is made in the ovaries and from hormones that are made in the adrenal glands. And really hormones from our adrenals are going to impact egg health, which will impact estrogen levels as well. So really ways to increase estrogen, kind of everything I mentioned with ways to improve DHEAS levels and improve adrenal health. But you also want to make sure you're eating enough healthy fats. So we need healthy fats to make hormones. So making sure you're eating avocado, nuts, seeds, fish, olives, you know, easy ways to get this in would be, I really love to add frozen avocado to my smoothies. Even if you're not an avocado person, I wasn't either for a long time. Thankfully, I have gone over that hump. But I just... I used to gag with avocado. I just couldn't do it. Now I can, so we're good. But for a while, the only way I could get an avocado was to put it in my smoothies and you don't taste it. You know, if you're making your smoothie right with like berries and cacao and, you know, I'll do like chocolate protein powder, you don't taste the avocado at all, but it does give it a like thick, creamy texture. So that's an easy way you can get in some healthy fats. You can add nuts and seeds to salads. That's a really easy way. You can add nut butter to oatmeal So just kind of looking at each meal and thinking, do I have a healthy fat here? And if not, trying to pick something that you enjoy and incorporating it in. Now, I don't talk about herbs a ton because it's so individual, but there are two that kind of stand out for me for helping to increase estrogen. So I definitely recommend talking to your healthcare provider before you start either of these. But one is going to be black cohosh, which is a plant. And the other is a Chinese herb called dongkwai. So if you work with a acupuncturist, they may be able to kind of guide you on the Dong Kwai dosage or working with a naturopathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor to discuss black cohosh if your levels are really low. But I would start with the adrenal support, making sure you're getting enough healthy fats and really just making sure you're eating enough overall. Okay. I think that is where we'll stop for today. I don't want to have episodes too long. I feel like the 30 minute time frame is like just enough to listen to when you're out on a walk and then wrap it up. So next week, like I mentioned, I will go over your hair loss questions, acne, facial hair, digestion, and mood. Um, also questions about like how to find quality products that are safe and just how to know if lifestyle and diet changes are working. So thank you so much for everyone who submitted questions. I love this format so much. Um, so if you do have any questions or topic requests, you can send them to Dr. Danielle period ND on Instagram or TikTok, and I will see you next Tuesday.